Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Ronald Sandler, a professor of philosophy at Northeastern University. He writes on environmental ethics, emerging technologies, and ethical issues surrounding climate change, food, and species conservation. His books include Environmental Ethics, Theory in Practice, and The Ethics of Species. Ron, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So one of the themes of the podcast uh, that uh, we've turned over a couple of times in past episodes is the relationship between the various disciplines engaged in studying the environment. Um, You've written in areas like conservation biology and climate change that are obviously highly influenced by scientific practice. So maybe just as a kind of initial question, what do you see the role of kind of philosophy, even more generally the humanities, but I guess specifically in your instance, philosophy in these conversations that are so heavily conditioned by, by the sciences? Well, a lot of what's going on in conservation biology, especially, but in, in terms of thinking about large scale ecological and climactic change, climate change and other kinds of ecological change, I mean, is thinking about how we ought to respond for the, to these things. And so those questions about the oughts are questions that are normative. Um, so they don't, they aren't the sorts of questions that could be settled just by the empirical sciences alone or projective sciences like modeling and such things. They're questions about uh, what we ought to do. They're questions about what kind of society we want to be. And they're questions about, uh, that, are, that are related to what sorts of things are valuable? What sorts of things do we care about? What sorts of things should we care about? And how do we move forward in some pretty novel contexts uh, in terms of thinking about how to protect those values? So good environmental philosophy, good environmental ethics, good normative thinking, thinking about what we ought to do in this uh, in these contexts, certainly need to be for, informed by our best science. Like we need to know what the reality is of uh, climate change, its causes. We need to understand what's driving biological and ecological change. We need to have as good an understanding as possible of um, extinction, what the causes of extinction are, what sort of strategies we have available to try to um, uh, prevent them as much as possible. So we need really good science. But the science alone isn't enough because the science alone won't tell us what matters and it won't tell us how to respond well as moral agents, um, as people who care about uh, the non-human world um, going forward. Yeah, um, great. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I I asked this question in part because some of my scientific friends and and folks in the advocacy community will sometimes kind of say, well, we have to do what the science says. And I always I always like to to uh, to bring in the the philosophers to say, well, you know, the science doesn't fully answer the question. Um, A couple of of straightforward uh, ethical principles might tell us a fair amount when you combine it with the science, but the science alone is, is never really enough. The science will tell us what is the case. Uh, it will allow us to think about what actions will likely have what outcomes, but it, it never alone is enough to tell us what we ought to do. There has to be some value or some normative principle um, that's there. And often they're, um, you know, they're, they're buried a little bit. So people mm-hmm. often have these normative ideas working in the background that they might not even um, be aware of, right? So something like we ought to save all species right. or something, right? Right. 
Well, so so on on the species question, thinking thinking about that, um, something you've obviously given a lot of thought to. Um, you know, this this question in particular, maybe one way to say it is what what is value about valuable about species? Uh, so so one hypo that you that you reference in a recent paper that I that I use in my law school class as well is you know, this kind of hypothetical question of, well, say there's, you know, a project that has to go forward and um, you know, it either is going to kill, you know, a thousand common pigeons or it's gonna wipe out the last thousand uh, members of a of a rare and or endangered species, and um, that are otherwise similar to pigeons in, in terms of their intelligence and you know their their habits or or whatever. And the question is, you know, is one course of action worse than the other? Is it worse to kill a thousand common pigeons? I don't think many people think that. Uh, or is it worse to wipe out the last members of the species, which probably many people would say is worse? And um, and then, and then the question is kind of why. So so I guess uh, you know just to kind of turn it over, you know, obviously you, you've thought about that that hypo. Uh, uh, one th- question, initial question is, do you think it is worse to kill the last uh, thousand members of the species? And then if so, you know, what what is it about that that um, you know that that is actually worse? Uh, yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, I agree. I, I share that intuition, right, or that judgment mm-hmm. that it's worse to kill the the last few remaining. Um, and 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 right, what the what the thought experiment is meant to do is to set it up so that the if you look at just the individuals, the individual organisms, mm-hmm. the pigeons or the other species, uh, call them smidgens, maybe uh, <laughs> that have all the same you know capacities, then it can't be the suffering of the individuals mm-hmm. or the deaths of the individuals that's what explains why. It's worse to kill the schmizgens than the pigeons. Um, but um, so what? So the question is, what could it be? Um, and it's it's so, and there's different possible answers. One could be that um, um, it just decreases uh, the diversity of kinds of organisms that there are in the world, and we might think that more diversity of this sort is good. Um, and so, decreasing diversity of biological in the biological world is, is bad. So it's, it's, it's worse because of the diversity. Um, and a way in which you might flesh that out even a little bit more is to say, what is, um, worse about it's what, what explains what's important about maintaining the biological diversity is that each of those that, uh, species are a distinctive form of life. Mm-hmm. They have a unique way of going about the world. They encode different genetic uh, histories, the natural history that has led up to that form of life. And they are each a locus of potential future evolutionary possibilities. And so when you lose this, the smidgens, in this case, uh, you don't just lose the thousand organisms, right? So that's just the death of a thousand organisms. You also lose that bit of natural history, mm-hmm. that unique bit of natural history, that unique set of pu- uh, future possible uh, evolutionary possibilities, which you don't with pigeons because um, there's loads more there. Um, so I do think it's possible to give, um, to substantiate those intuitions or judgments that it's worse to to kill the last remaining members than it would be to um, to kill common species. And what it reveals to us is something about why species are valuable, why that level, that taxonomic unit mm-hmm. is something that we care about. And and it has to do with this kind of the um, the information that's encoded or the relationship between um, 
the kind of natural history of, of that kind of that unit, that it's a meaningful unit from this perspective of kind of existing backward in time and projecting itself forward in time. Is that is that roughly the idea? Yeah. And that it's connected to a distinctive form of life, like a distinctive way of being in the world of of going about reproducing itself of feeding and ex- and and living and predating and being predated on and all the sorts of things that go with being a kind of biological organism in the world that that are the sorts of things that we find um i think rightly kind of amazing about all sorts of different right it, the, the diversity of the biological world is a diversity of ways in which organisms go about their lives, mm-hmm. right? And salmon and eagles and and coyotes, or if you don't like coyotes, wolves. Mm-hmm. If you don't like wolves, fox, whatever, uh, are um, are each a distinctive form of life, and uh, that has evolved over many, many, you know, thousands and millions of years um, to be that form. Um, now, this isn't to say that they are, this was done intentionally, right? That's mm-hmm. part of what's amazing about this is the unintentional evolutionary processes that have given rise to this thing. But if you lose um, the last few members of a species, uh, you lose that form. And that's the extra loss there, that yeah. way of being in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah, great. And then I think, you know, it's kind of, we talk about the, what, it, it's amazing, right? That it's just, you know, the, 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 the variety of life, the, um, the diversity of life forms that we have on this planet is just something that, um, you know, strikes awe in the, when, when, when we contemplate it. That it seems to be, if I take it correctly, it's part of what, um, it, that, that, that's important to the, to the claim here, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, because, um, one of the you know takeaways that I took from from the, uh, one of your earlier books, The Ethics of Species, is that, and this m- might not still be your view. <laughs> I mean, that, that that always happens too. We can always revise our views, but that the idea that species don't have what you call objective final value, right? That kind of value in and of themselves, their value comes from. Um, you know, maybe an appropriate way that humans, you know, kind of relate to the natural world and, and so on. Um, so maybe I wonder if, you, if it's worth parsing through the distinction between kind of the idea that there would be, you know, a f- kind of unique or sorry, objective final value, or some people talk about inherent value, that kind of thing, versus the kinds of values that you're talking about that that might spring from maybe an appropriate relationship that humans have to to, to these things. Yeah. So this, uh, yeah. There, so this gets us into the philosophical uh, terrain a little deeper. The, the um, so suppose we take this idea that um, species have value above and beyond the individual organisms that comprise them, mm-hmm. um, and we can talk also about like what makes a species a species and what kind of right. thing is a species. Those sorts of things. But suppose that we can fix that, um, and we can say like they have value. Then, then we can say, well, what sort of value is it that it has? And this has been one of the main um, philosophical issues associated with environmental ethics over the last many decades um, because it's connected to how we ought to respond to their value, what type of value they have. Um, So one view um, is that they have um, uh, 
So, so one, one type of distinction uh, in value is between instrumental and final value. Mm-hmm. And that's the distinction between something that is valuable for what it is versus something being valuable as a means to an end. So if something's valuable as a means to an end, it provides services or something like this, mm-hmm. um, it's a resource, then that would be instrumental value. Um, if something's valuable as fi- has final value, then it's valuable for what it is in addition to or beyond uh, what it is, what its usefulness. And that's how we think of the value of other human beings, right? Human beings mm-hmm. are useful to other human beings in all kinds of ways, but we don't think they're only instrumentally valuable, right? That's why they have. That's why you can't treat humans in certain kinds of ways because they have final value. They have rights. They're not mere things to be mm-hmm. used. So, on the view I was describing before about uh, the value of species and explaining that thought experiment, that is a view that that would uh, suggest that they have final value. Mm-hmm. Okay, but within final value, there's sometimes a distinction that's made between things that have final value because they're valued that way and things that have final value. Um, independent of their being valued that way. So on this distinction, uh, the subjective sort of value is when something has final value just because we've, we humans value it for what it is and not merely for what it does. And there's lots of things that have value like this, like mementos mm-hmm. or um, heirlooms or these sorts of things, right? right. We value them. They're just, they're just an object, but they come to be valued for more than that. When some people think of, a, of species, they think that they have – that it's not just that, that we do value them that way, but that we should value them that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is my view, that they, they should be valued that way because it's, it's what I think of as a fitting response to an understanding of, as you were saying before, the um, – the way in which they're a unique form of life and they came to be and they are future evolutionary possibilities. Like it's, it's, it's the way to appreciate them. It's a way to value them. It's the way to, um, um, to understand ourselves in relation to them. Um, but what I don't think is that if um, there were no people around at all, mm-hmm. that these things would still have value. That is, value in a world in which they're valuers. So the way I think about it is that they, that valuing them for what they are is the most justified response. It's the way in which we ought to value them. Um, but we can set aside then questions about whether there would be, they have objective value in the sense that there would be value in the world if there was only them or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the view that I... I I find problematic in the book. I'm not sure how to make. I'm not. I'm not sure uh, how one would justify that adequately. Right. Right. Um, there's kind of two forks here. There's a lot of uh, uh, interesting stuff. I'm jumping around my my little schedule here a little bit. But yeah. 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 There, there seems like there could be two two forks here that I think maybe um, I'd be interested in exploring. So one is um, part of what I take it to be the source of kind of this objective final value is this notion of interests that entities that have interests um, can have, you know, we might think of as having objective final value and species. It's hard to imagine. It's, it's it, it maybe not right to think of them as having interests. So, th- so that might be one thing that's worth exploring. The other thing that I think is interesting, and maybe I'll let you choose which of these you think is more interesting is, you know, the kind of at it, it, 
ethics versus aesthetics in this in this domain because the you know the the subjective final value the valuing things in them of themselves as you said kind of mementos or the like I, I assume that great art would kind of fit into that category of things that you know we think of as having value in and of themselves um, you know and that maybe even we might say it's appropriate for people to value them in in that way, right? They wouldn't have value if there were no people around. That probably doesn't make any sense. Um, but um, but it's appropriate for people to place value in those things and in and of themselves. Now, I guess the question is, is that kind of value an, an ethical value or like something that we would think is more kind of just aesthetic or something along those lines? So I think that it depends on the details. I mean, hmm. you know, I, I suppose it depends what you mean by aesthetic value, what right, you count right, as that value. Right. Um, so one thing that people say about art, right, is that it's just, its beauty is in the eye of the beholder or something mm -hmm. like that. It's just completely subjective, uh, if you imagine that. But actually, real understanding and appreciation of art isn't quite like that. I mean, when you understand, it's not just how the thing looks. Right, it's just not right. just the intrinsic relation between the colors uh, and the material in the painting, or something like that, um, that makes something valuable. It's that it was painted at a certain time by a certain person at a certain point in the history of the development mm -hmm. of art. What was novel about it when it right. was done? So, there is a way in which the more you can understand what's going on, the more you understand the context of the creation and the person who created it and the histories and the traditions, then it becomes fitting mm -hmm. to value certain pieces of artwork more than others mm -hmm. because they're a certain kind of accomplishment, right? And so, it's not strictly in a the eye of the beholder in those kinds of contexts. So I do think that there is some similarity there with the way in which we value species. Once you come to understand what they are, where they've come from, that they encode the natural history of the planet, that they are these unique forms of life that have arisen by these uh, human independent evolutionary processes and that they're the locus of future possibilities and all of these sorts of things. Once you begin to, once you see them that way, mm -hmm. it's fitting, it's fitting to value them. It's the right response to the kind of thing that they are. Right. And and we can talk about that as a relation between our valuing and their properties without having to posit any kind of weird metaphysical <laughs> stuff, right? Stuff universe, it's right. appropriate for creatures like us to value them for what they are because these sorts of things. Right. Um, so I do think that there's a bit of... Um, there's a bit of connection there. Now, um, what sh what we call aesthetic, I mean, you know, that's a whole, I suppose, a whole different, whole different podcast right there. Right. Um, to the to the question about whether species have interests, so this is this is something folks, some some um, philosophers and environmental ethicists do think that that species have interests above and beyond the individuals that comprise them. It's not. Um, I, th I think it's a difficult view to maintain. Um, because it's hard to make sense of benefit and harm um, to, to, to a species. So you can benefit or harm individual wolves, but it's hard to make sense of how you benefit or harm Canis lupus or, mm -hmm. or something like that. I mean, that's, that's, they're not alive. They don't feel anything. Collectively. 
collect the species, the Canis lupus isn't a living organism. Individual wolves, yes, of course. Right. So, so part of the reason why I, um, I, I think that the ethics versus aesthetics things is, is can be interesting is, um, kind of how, how sometimes I think environmental questions are processed in the public domain, how we talk about them and, and the kinds of objections people raise to environmental law and so on. So, um, kind of where I'm going with this is if someone kind of says, look, um, you know, uh, that the, the ethical claims are kind of different in a sense than aesthetic claims, that the, the kinds of arguments that people can raise against them. So if someone says, look, we're undertaking this, um, this policy, this conservation policy, because we have ethical grounds for doing it, right? Then, then we can do things like, say, take away someone's property <laughs> um, or place restrictions on their activities or, or, or the like, right? The Endangered Species Act. Um, obviously places all kinds of restrictions on what people can do um, in order to conserve species uh, to avoid extinctions. Uh, if that's a, an ethical thing that we're, if we're doing it in order to, because we have to, right, we have some kind of moral obligation to preserve the species or the like, that seems like a different kind of argument to be made than one that is kind of aesthetic in orientation, right? So if, if we were to say, um, you know, we think they're beautiful or, you know, we're going to preserve you know, some buildings or something like that, right? In, in, a, in a downtown area. And we're going to engage in historic preservation, which we do do this, right? Same thing. And we place restrictions on what people uh, can and can't do with their property in order to preserve kind of historic values. Um, it does seem like a different kind of enterprise to say, uh, we're doing this in order to, you know, for kind of aesthetic reasons versus we're doing it because we have a moral obligation to do it. Now, maybe this distinction that I'm drawing is not a useful one. So I'm just, I'm kind of just curious what your, your, your thoughts are about, you know, if, if there's just a symmetry between these things or if, if there is, you know, different kinds of claims being made in different domains. Yeah, it's a great question. So the... I mean, what we've been talking about previously is the way in which you might ground claims that species have mm-hmm. final value or intrinsic value or value for what they are, um, independent of their usefulness to people and independent of that. Um, and now I gave an argument, which was essentially that um, we ought to value them that way because that's the appropriate response to a proper understanding of the sorts of things that they that they are. So mm-hmm. it's not just a kind of aesthetic appreciation in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just that we like looking at them or something like that. It's not mm-hmm. just subjective. It's that we we ought to value them for what they are. Now, that whole discussion we just had was focusing just on a certain way in which species are valuable, valuable for the kind of thing, the kind of life form that they are. Mm-hmm. But species are valuable in all kinds of other ways too that mm-hmm. can ground the kind of obligations and responsibilities and ultimately the sorts of restrictions that you're talking about. I mean, they can be central to cultural practice and so have all kinds of cultural value. And so they ought to be preserved for those reasons. They can be um, extraordinarily instrumentally valuable to providing resources and services um, for everything from storm uh, resiliency to fisheries productivity um, to, (laughs) to, you know, providing clean water and these sorts of things. Um, And they can also be, um, they can also be um, the subject of justice uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that, or we might say the object of justice, in the sense that mm. um, nobody owns the biodiversity of 
country or an area or the world or something like that, right? They are, it's a, it's a shared communal thing. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of justice to other people, to current people, to future people, it might be that we have an obligation not to significantly diminish the uh, diversity of the biological world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that um, a full, when you provide a full accounting of all the ways in which species and biodiversity are valuable, cultural, uh, final value, aesthetic value, as an object of justice, uh, instrumentally valuable, then you're then the the um, uh, the normative justification for policies and practices that protect biodiversity are overdetermined. Like we have more than enough good reasons mm-hmm. to want to avoid species extinctions and um, especially and and biological depletion, even when it doesn't involve species distinctions. Now, there's going to be hard cases, and that's why we have to have a right accounting of what and how things are valuable, so we can help reason through those cases when sometimes there does seem to be trade-offs that have to be made or compromises that have to be made. But in general, uh, I think uh, species conservation, biodiversity conservation um, is is overdetermined by all those sorts of values. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, it's one of those things that's... Uh, uh, there are some interesting philosophical questions, but a lot of times, you know, it it's almost doesn't matter how we answer them because everyone points in the same direction. <laughs> Just says, okay, we should be doing more conservation. And it's interesting in the, in these in document, like in the Endangered Species Act, right? It calls out all these different ways: cultural mm-hmm. value and. Um, uh, historical value. And it is just calls out a lot of instrumental values and all, all sorts of things. So there's an awareness of the ways in which the, the, the multitude of ways in which species and biodiversity are valuable. Yeah. I do well, just, you know, one kind of maybe final question on, th- on this line is, you know, one, this does raise, I think the question though, of whether we tend to focus too much on species in, in environmental law and policy, say in the U S where we have, you know, the Endangered Species Act is such such a powerful, it's such an important part of our, our law, um, and it has this peg in, in particular of species. Um, and now it's used in lots of ways to, to generate conservation that's more broad, right? You have kind of keystone species or you have a species, you know, where you protect the spotted owl and it, you know, protects lots of, it protects ecosystems and um it does lots of things other than just protect the individual um, individual uh, animals or a particular line of species. But I guess this this comes up in the context of thinking of of, of you, you've written about kind of transplanting species from one place to the other. And one of the things that, that I've it seems that you've that you've said in your work is that that that's kind of a mistake. Is to um, that's focusing too much on species. Like it's one thing. Um, to protect a species in its place. It's another thing to kind of pick it up and move it to an entirely different location. We actually lose a lot of value. Um, it's not clear what we maintain when we, when we do that. So, so I guess the, the more general question is, you know, do you think that the kind of conservation law and policy in the, in the States at least is too species oriented? And then the kind of related question is, is about this kind of um, moving species around and, and is that a wise policy? That's, those are both great questions. So, the, so they, the, the, um, it is an interesting feature, I think, of the way in which um, conservation policy in the United States has moved, right? Is that the Endangered Species Act is so powerful because it creates these critical habitats and mm-hmm. designated species can function as umbrella species for conserving lots of other things that it becomes focused on 
getting on those designations and on the species conservation, when oftentimes what actually is the most important thing is getting the, the spaces conserved. Mm-hmm. And we do that as well, right? Uh, parks and um, national parks and state forests and other sorts of things, you know, restrict activities in those space to try to conserve and preserve the things that are in those those areas. So it's not exclusively with species, but the, the Endangered Species Act is definitely, um, you know, extremely powerful in the United States. It is a really... Uh, interesting question, a question that people are beginning to think more about. Um, in the context of global climate change and uh, macro-scale ecological change, anthropogenic change more generally, whether we should think more about endangered ecosystems, for example, and about whether we need policies that focus on identifying the types of systems that are endangered, um, whether or not we need to focus more, and this this is increasingly being done, on connectivity between different habitats and protected areas so that spe- uh, species, population, systems can reconfigure in response to these rapid changes. Um, so I, I mean, it, it, so, so in, in answer to your question, uh, it seems like we ought to have a broader view of conservation than just species conservation. Um, and this is also true because you can have massive biological depletion without extinction. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, on some studies, uh, 70% of assessed vertebrate species, the populations of er, populations of assessed species have decreased 70%. Um, not always with many extinctions, but just the number of individuals in the population have gone way down. Or if you think about fisheries, we have, you know, over 90% of of global fisheries are fully or overexploited. So that's massive biological, you know, 100 million tons of biological diversity pulled out of the oceans every year. And these aren't really fisheries, I and mean, we call them fisheries, but they're ecological systems. Um, so you can have massive biological depletion and impact without extinction. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think we need to be in conservation context thinking beyond extinction for all of these reasons because the systems and the habitats um, are really uh, important and because you can have depletion without extinction. Um, Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it's one of the things that I, I talk about in, in at the end of my Endangered Species Act portion of my class. I, I point out the number of species that are listed and then point to the number of species that are likely to be threatened or, you know, go extinct in the next hundred years due to these big, you know, kind of macro global level things like climate change and um, ocean acidification and the like. And, you know, really the kind of one by one stopping extinctions one at a time just doesn't seem like a viable policy. It starts to seem not like a viable policy approach once you start to think about there's going to be tens of thousands, potentially millions of extinctions in the in the coming years. Yeah, I mean, the, the extinction crisis that we're facing is going to be one that you can't handle with one-offs, right? I mean, if we think about, you know, estimates vary, but 15 to 20 eukaryotic plant or animal species. And then you think about the projections on extinction rates over the next century, which you know, we, we could be looking at, you know, a million extinctions. So <laughs> you're not going to be able uh, to get a million species listed under this or that act. What you, what we need are, are um, strategies that capture and protect large amounts of species, but also the ecological systems and the spaces where they can reconfigure. Um, and that's you know, not to say that the Endangered Species Act isn't super important and that focusing on particular species isn't 
important. In many, many cases, it is. And in many, many cases, the kinds of threats to species are ones that can be addressed. Mm -hmm. But it does seem like we need to think um, more broadly and more innovatively in the context of the massive extinction and biological depletion context. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the, um, you know, this is kind of a, this changes this topic a little bit from things that we're doing that are terrible, <laughs> uh, like, uh, like global climate change to, you know, what we could do to kind of, I mean, what we're talking about now are kind of mitigate some of the harms that we're engaged in, right? But one question I think is interesting, I'd just be curious again about your thoughts on this. I think it's a, I personally find it to be a kind of a deep-ish question anyway, is about, um, you know, things that we could consider doing that would be kind of just beneficial to um, to creatures in the natural world, to, to individual animals and, and, and the like. And I think in part because it would might illuminate some of the ways that you think, or I'd be curious about anyway, whether it illuminates some of the ways that you think about these issues. So so the, the basic um, hypo that I'm interested in is this policing nature idea, right, that we could go out and um, there are animals that there's a lot of suffering in the natural world and that, um, you know, we could actually reduce some of that suffering. Let's just say to animals just to, to start with, right, um, that, um, you know, predation causes a lot of suffering and we could go and we could, you know, feed the predators, um, you know, uh, uh, soy-based protein and save the, the prey from being kind of torn, torn to shreds. Um, and, you know, kind of in this interventionist way. And I take it from at least some of this, the things from, you know, the little snippets in, in that I've seen of yours that that you, you don't find that a very attractive uh, idea. And, I, and I'd be curious just on your, your thoughts on, on why, why that's not. And it, because I think it does in a sense link up to some, some of the things that we've been talking about, about kind of our relationship to the natural world and the like. Yeah, so um so the there's both practical and theoretical reasons why I I find this to be an extremely strange um idea for how we should engage with the natural world. So one is that there's just a background view here um that all suffering is bad. Mm-hmm. And that all suffering calls upon us, humans, moral agents, um, to alleviate it. Uh, but um, that seems a particularly odd uh, view. I mean, causing suffering unnecessarily to other people or to non-human animals, that's, you know, we might say that's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's suffering that happens in human life all the time that is part of that is part of life, and people need to go through it. Uh, and and there's so, same with thinking about the non-human world. I mean, the 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 natural world is a world of of predation. I mean, it there is. It's just the way the population dynamics work. There's more offspring than can survive. Mm-hmm. Um, there's everything needs to get energy from somewhere else. Um, this is the wildness and autonomy and spontaneity and selection process. This is, this is neat. Like this is <laughs> what mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so looking at that and then applying a principle like what we might call active beneficence that you ought to try mm-hmm. to reduce suffering as much as possible seems to misunderstand 
the kind of thing that the non-human world is. So there's a kind of background conception there about um, what our relationship to the world is, what the non-human world is, and those sort of things. The other thing that I just find um, odd about it is um, is the practicality. Mm-hmm. I mean, now this isn't to say that when humans do something that injures a non-human wild animal, that there's not in that particular instance good reason to try to redress it um, because we've we've caused the harm or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's different from saying we ought to go into the natural world and identify predators and try to feed them something else so that they, right. they don't do these sorts of things. I mean, how on earth are we going to implement that in any sort of scale in ways that don't then cause other kinds of harms or wrongs and that don't significantly dis- diminish other things that have to do with animal welfare um, because it's not just about suffering. It's also about autonomy. It's about living species-typical forms of life and other sorts of things. So it also involves this kind of narrow conception of what makes for a good wild animal life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, I do, I do have concerns about those very interventionist views on how we ought to relate to the non-human world. Um, and so then maybe like a kind of a follow-up question is, is how much of the, you know, this is an action in action distinction kind of thing at some level. Um, do you think that carries over just and this in some ways is like a very general question um, of kind of like your, your broad philosophical orientation, um, like kind of consequential, consequentialist, deontological virtue, virtue ethics. Cause it, it, in, in reading your, your work, one of the things I think is really interesting about it is that you do seem to draw from these different traditions and use these different kinds of um, forms of, of moral reasoning to, to address these questions. Um, so I, want, I was kind of curious if you thought that the the natural, the kind of human natural distinction marked a sharp boundary there where, you know, we might say, oh, within in, within human affairs, you know, maybe we're not going to have, you know, a very strong action in action distinction. Or if we're going to have it, we're going to have it for instrumental instrumentalist reasons, uh, practical reasons, basically. Um, but that, you know, broadly speaking, you know, it doesn't kind of have foundational uh, moral significance, but it does have a kind of foundational moral significance once we cross over into the uh, kind of the non-human domain, or whether you you know you're kind of in the philosophical school that would say no, actually we really you know there is a difference between causing harm and, and alleviating you know alleviating suffering, and that we have obligations in the first kind of side of things that we don't have on the other side of things. Um. That's, that's a good question and a big question. Yeah. So let, let me let me say, um, so I think that when we think about how we ought to respond to something that is important or has value or that matters or has a welfare, there's all different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not enough to just know that that thing has value or matters. We also have to think about our relationship with respect to it. Mm -hmm. So um, there is no denying that my children and other people's children have the same inherent worth or value or whatever. But that doesn't mean that I ought to treat other people's children or have the same obligations and duties to them Mm -hmm. as I do to my children. So the same is true of my dog and a wild wolf, mm-hmm. right? They might both uh, have similar capacities. They mm-hmm. both have interests. They both have welfare and they have 
well-being. Um, I, and it might be that in both cases, I ought not cause them unnecessary suffering. Mm-hmm. So that's a way in which I ought to respond to them. But I have duties of beneficence uh, to my dog that are part of my taking on the responsibility of having a pet and also that have been developed over a relationship that has built over time that to take care of the, her in a way that I don't have to a, to a wild animal. So in my thinking about how we ought to um, how we ought to respond to things that are valuable in the world, we have to think about both both the value and our situatedness with respect to them. And so this is what I think is conf- is gotten um, gotten off about these ideas that we should intervene into the wild, into the nature, into um, those things. It's not it's not a human non-human distinction because my dog is non-human right. as well. It has to do with the fact that um, it has to do with the the autonomy and independence and wildness of of those particular entities. Um, and and again, that's why if I cause harm to them unnecessarily, that changes my relationship to them, and maybe I have a restitutive, restorative justice responsibility that I don't otherwise have, or that a community doesn't otherwise have. Great. Yeah. So, I, of course, I, I, uh, every question in philosophy just leads to more questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I totally ducked the, uh, the the consequential ontology virtue, right? Which is fair enough. Fair enough. Kind of uh, thing because because I think that the, the normative relationships are laid out by understanding what's valuable and how we stand with respect to those values as agents, and that those are articulated in different sorts of ways. So in some contexts. Um, the way in which we do it, we need to respect the value of the thing, that I need to respect the mm-hmm. autonomy of other human beings, and that's why I have to respect their rights, and that's kind of a deon mm-hmm. – that, that is what people would call a deontological mm-hmm. sort of thing. But in other contexts, um, uh, I, need to, I need to promote the good, and the good might be the flourishing of a uh, non-human world. Uh, and that's what more people would think of as a kind of consequentialist thing because you're promoting an outcome. Um, but it's understanding the context and the values that are at stake. Yeah, no, that's, and I think part of what's fun about, personally fun about environmental ethics, environmental morality is, you know, it kind of, it almost requires or it certainly challenges a lot of traditional morality. That's what's kind of so interesting about is we're developing a way of thinking morally that is pretty new, right? Whereas we've been doing other types of moral reasoning for a very long time. I mean, maybe this is another question. Is, is, is that part of what attracted you to environmental ethics as a, as a domain is that you get to kind of, you know, a, approach really in the history of human th- uh, thinking anyway, pretty, pretty new kinds of problems. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the systematically thinking through our, our ethical relationships and responsibilities and responsiveness to the non-human world is a fairly, I mean, not that, that, not that it wasn't happening, you mm-hmm. know, thousands of years ago, people were thinking about that, about these things in certain kinds of ways, but in comparison to thinking about, um, our moral relationships to uh, other people. It's relatively new, and it really does create all kinds of interesting questions that we've we've co- we've covered quite a lot of. Like, how do you um, how do we view these other sorts of things? How do we understand our relationship to them in a proper sort of way? What sorts of values uh, does the non-human world have, and how should we respond to those values? And it's it's uh, it's not clearly. Um, you know, the answer is, is, is not, well, just like they were people, right? Because, right. um, uh, 
they're not human beings and they can't engage in certain kinds of reciprocal relationships and they don't have certain kinds of capacities. Um, so it's, it's a different kind of, um, a different, it's a different set of questions and they're urgent questions and they're interesting questions, both, um, conceptually and practically. Yeah. So, so just, you know, returning to the, the situatedness question, I think that, you know, this we'll kind of see where this goes. So the, um, the relationship to one's, you know, pet or versus a wild wolf or, you know, one's own kids versus other kids, right? So there's the, the kind of two things is if you, there's maybe at some level, right, they all have the same objective value, but you personally have different obligations because of your situated relationship to those things. And um, now one, the kind of meta question is, you know, ultimately then are we, we're kind of really taking the, 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 the broad perspective and saying, all right, well, um, everything has its own kind of objective moral value um, that, that is pretty agent neutral. And then what we ought to do is think about how to um, construct kind of our situated moral obligations and so on in light of that fact, right? So the, which is to say the world is better for everybody when um, people's moral obligations uh, are situated and relationship-based, right? And so that's kind of the, the, the same way that we might be cosmopolitans and say that, you know, national boundaries don't have uh, kind of foundational moral significance, but it is good to, more at least arguably, one could argue that it is good to have these certain types of political communities that allow for certain types of affinity and, you know, policies and political discourse or whatever else, right? Yeah. I mean, all people have equal worth, um, but not everybody's your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Right. And, 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 and the fact that people have worth places responsibilities on us that we need to take seriously and that we often have to act upon and prevent harms and promote goods. But we also have, um, you know, we have relationships with our neighbors that are built over time that place uh, additional and different uh, responsibilities on us. And we would, and I think the kind of addendum to that might be, we wouldn't want to live in a world or it would be a worse kind of world for everyone if there was if those neighborly relationships didn't mean something. Well, it's just part of I think this is, you know, part of understanding the kinds of creatures that we are, mm-hmm. right? I mean, ethics is ultimately a question about how should we live as the kind of creatures that we are and what we've been talking about is we are um we are environmental creatures. Right? We mm-hmm. have biological needs and dependencies. We're part of a biological world. We share an evolutionary origin with other species and so on. Um, mm-hmm. But we're also social creatures, and we have certain kinds of social networks and relationships, and strong social, immediate, caring, reciprocal relationships are also part of living a good human life, in addition to caring about um, the state of people around the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so thinking about the kinds of creatures that we are, um, I think, informs both why it's important uh, to be a good neighbor uh, mm-hmm. and why it's important to um, to value the biological diversity in the world. Yeah. So I think this actually kind of kind of springs from this is the, the, the kind of kind of creatures we are question, which is, you know, this isn't fixed, right? This changes over time. Um, people, humans, or at least collectively humans, are very different now than we were uh, 50,000 years ago. Obviously, our impact on the environment is very different. Our, you know, access to information is very different. Um, 
you know, our you know background knowledge is very different. Uh, lots of things are different <laughs> from what things were 50,000 years ago. And, you know, one kind of broad question I think is, as humans change, and specifically the, the relationship of humans to the natural environment, right? So we know a lot more about evolution than we knew, you know, a few hundred years ago. Um, and so I guess one, so maybe just, just to start tackling this is, one, do, does our state of knowledge um, actually, like some, about something like evolution, does that directly have kind of consequences for how we ought to kind of in, engage with the world in, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a basic way? Um, whereas, you know, again, several hundred years ago, maybe we knew what species were, but we didn't have nearly as crisp an idea of what a species was. Um, that species went extinct, wasn't altogether clear. And so we've learned a lot about the world. Um, yeah, how do you see that interplay of, you know, the state, our scientific understanding about the world then feeding into how we ought to, you know, kind of act in the world and kind of our, and not just in the, we understand what the consequences of our actions are, right? That's straightforward, more of like it changes how we kind of fundamentally relate to the world and in, in, in kind of what we are vis-a-vis the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's crucial. So the the fact that having an ecologically and evolutionarily informed worldview, right? The idea that we are ecologically dependent and vulnerable mm-hmm. in all sorts of ways, but also recognizing that we have a common evolutionary origin with other species, that evolution isn't um, trying to get mm-hmm. anywhere. There's no such thing as the highest species. Mm-hmm. They're just different forms of life and we're a really interesting form of life. Um, but so too are octopi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> They're a really interesting form of life too and a distinctive way of going about the world. And we're really well adapted to surviving and reproducing in one context, but not in the context in which octopi right. are. Right. right? Um, so there's, you know, we're a unique species, but being a unique species is nothing unique to us. Um, undermines that understanding undermines claims about our having a special or unique or highest place in the ontological or metaphysical order of mm-hmm. the world and that's crucial to recognizing that um, the rest of the non-human world isn't so very different from us and isn't just a resource for us to use, right? It's not a clean ontological bifurcation between human beings and all the other stuff, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And that uh, undermines the dichotomy between, think the dichotomy, uh, breaking down that dichotomy breaks down or undermines the view that we should see ourselves as distinct from the rest of the world and the rest of the world as sort of this resource that's just ours for for use, but instead we have an affinity within shared origins and shared dependencies and vulnerabilities. And that needs to go into thinking about how we should respond. Um, we should respond to the world. Um, and this comes up, you know, to a question you asked earlier. This relates to a question you asked earlier about thinking through like what would it take to really respond to the extinction crises that we're facing, right? Um, this is why a, a, a world in which it's just humans and a bunch of resources mm-hmm. is a depleted world. We shouldn't see that as a good outcome. And what's driving the extinction crisis is essentially our consumption, right? Humans 
make use of 40% of the primary plant production of the planet. That is the energy that's produced by plants. Um, you know, we've exploited almost all the aquatic systems that we can for our food, uh, you know, ranges, but around 38% of the terrestrial surface of the earth is used for our agricultural purposes. I mean, we could go yeah. on and on about all the ways in which we, we impact the world. And, and it just doesn't leave enough for other species. Um, and so the only real large-scale response that's going to uh, make a big dent in the extinction crisis, I mean, we can talk about particular species conservation strategies and designating mm -hmm. areas and genetic interventions and other sorts of things, is going to reduce um, the share of planetary resources that humans right. use. Yeah. And, and, seeing the, and seeing the rest of the world as not just a resource is crucial to the worldview that um, needs to shift um, to make that possible. This is a, 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 I don't know if this is an interesting question or not, but just with respect to that of kind of the share of resources that humans can use, have we, we have converted uh, to our use versus uh, the share of resources that we might leave to what we would call maybe natural systems. Although you point out, of course, that humans are natural in, in, the, in a very broad sense. We come out of the natural world we evolved in the same conditions as other species. But um, do you see that as a justice question? Is that, it's a, that it's a question of justice between humans and non-humans? Or is that is, is justice the wrong framing? And if if it is, you know, how, how do we get at that question? Like what's the, how do we get traction on the question of what the right amount of, say, you know, total aggregate resources to, um, uh, to devote to humans versus to, to, to the rest of the natural world. Um, so it, it definitely is an interesting question. So I think there's, there's kind of a narrow conception of justice and a broad conception of justice. So the narrow conception of justice is justice that's tied to the arrangements of social, political, and economic institutions and the roles that folks have in those institutions mm -hmm. and the distribution of resources made by those institutions and the amount of power that folks have within those institutions, like all yeah. sorts of institutional related justice questions. And I, I think that's the most common, more common sense of people talk about justice. Um, so in that sense, I think it's hard to think about justice between the species. Um, but if you think just broadly about um, uh, distribu distributive justice or mm -hmm. access justice or resource, then, then maybe you can make sense of, you know, that's it's unfair that one species would use 40% of uh, of the planetary resources when there's 15 million, 20 million right. other species out there. Um, so, so that's, um, um, that's one thing. I think the question to ask, you know, so I think it's hard to say, well, you know, there, there's proposals out there, right? I mean, um, hopefully uh, the conservation on biological diversity is going to, hopefully these meetings that are scheduled to happen um, coming up will, will happen. And there's some talk that there's going to be a, a proposal adopted to uh, try to set a goal of protecting 30% of the uh uh, planetary surface or uh, land and sea uh, for conservation. And, and the other people have talked about the mm -hmm. half earth proposal and these sorts of things. Um, so, I mean, people do try to set targets. Um, it's hard to say what exactly the right target would be. I think the question that uh, I try to at least encourage my, my students to think about is, is how can we live flourishing human lives alongside or in relation to other species and other organisms flourishing as well. Mm -hmm. 
And that's a, and those are very often going to be lives that, and it, and it's, it's possible, right? Like, I think it's, Hmm. (laughs) there's reasons to be optimistic. I mean, it does require making changes. Like it's pretty clear that if we eat less beef, uh, or less meat, this is going to have positive ecological benefits on the planet, like in a pretty big way. Like if everybody reduces their, their beef consumption, if people in affluent nations reduce their beef consumption 75%, that's like a huge benefit, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and that has cost. But that, is that really going to undermine the extent to which we can, we can flourish? Um, I mean, if, if people change their traveling behavior so that they have less emissions uh, with flying, is that really going to undermine how good a life that they can live. I mean, we just have to reorient our conceptions of what a good life is back to focusing on relationships and certain kinds of experiences and building skills and talents and community um, rather than the consumption and acquisition of of material goods. Um, not that we shouldn't have material goods. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I'm not saying we should do go like the, the goal here isn't zero, but it is temperance. It is thinking about simplicity. It is thinking about waste and what is what is a distraction from living good meaningful lives that would also um, enable other species um, and ecological systems to flourish more as well great so uh, this is going to be a totally unfair last question because it just gets into a ton of very complicated stuff but just it's it's it does strike me as the natural follow-up which is um, so, so, so consuming, uh, less would certainly be one way to reduce the, um, uh, the, the kind of footprint that humans have on the, on the planet. Another one that you, it was another kind of proposal that was similar in, in a sense of reducing human total, um, footprint, um, is less discussed these days, but this is about the total human population. So there's a lot of people. And of course, for, for whatever amount of consumption, you can always increase the population, uh, to, uh, to have a, you know, whatever footprint you, you want. And so I'm curious how you think about those issues. I think, you know, these days, you know, there's a, I think a standard thing is just like, look, we don't have to worry about population. It's really about high consuming individuals in the, the rich world. And if we were to reduce that, then, you know, a, the problem kind of goes away. Um, at least for a while, but I think the issue is over the long term. You know, if we continue to 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 kind of increase population size, that that's you know ultimately um, you're going to run into kind of you're going to run into this problem of um, the human footprint is just going to kind of increase over time, even if we reduce our consumption levels. So, I mean. It is absolutely the case that how much we consume, how many people are consuming, and the amount of resources that are necessary per unit of consumption, Mm -hmm. let's say, Mm -hmm. like the efficiency of production, which is a technology uh, and other kinds of um, uh, efficiency uh, Mm -hmm. issues are all part of this. Um, Now, when we talk about reducing human share of, cons- of resources. The, the question is, so I don't think the way to think about it is necessarily like, uh, what's the goal that we set, right? We have to think about the things or the policies or the practices that would get us there and, or, or get us moving in the right direction. And those policies and practices too have to be evaluated in terms for their ethical acceptability, right? right? And the best options are the ones that are win-wins or win-win-wins, right? So there's pretty good evidence that 
um, you know, increasing uh, educational and workforce opportunities for women, increasing access to healthcare and family planning will reduce fertility rates in a pretty strong way, in increasing uh, security, decreasing um, uh, huge inequalities. Um, these are all sorts of things that can be addressed that can lead to lower levels of consumption, lower levels of population growth. Um, and I would add this shifting of the idea that, I mean, you know, if you if you watch TV, right, the picture is still like how what's the good life? What's the good American life? It is the it is the maximizing the amount of stuff that you have. Yeah. Um, but we know that people's pursuit of materialistic pursuits actually um, there's good evidence, social psychological evidence um, that if you if that's your goal, it tends to make you less happy because it tends to undermine the amount of time that you spend. Um, with other people in positive relationships in beneficial settings, like it reduces the amount of time you spend working in your community or spends the time that you spend with your neighbors or with your family or other sorts of things. So there's lots of ways on uh, the materialism, like moving away from materialism, putting into place uh, policies and practices that would empower people um, and um, putting into place um, policies and practices that would encourage certain forms of consumption over others, like consumption of durable, mm -hmm. lasting goods rather than consumable, throwaway goods that could, could go a long way, right? And, and you know, this is like, this is that, you know, the good example that people like to talk about is the eating lots of mm -hmm. meat, a meat-heavy diet, right? It's actually healthier <laughs> if you reduce the amount of meat consumption. Like, that's a win. And it's good for the planet. And it's good for animal welfare because the concentrated animal feed operations uh, cause very serious suffering to the animals involved. So there's loads of ways on population, on consumption, on conceptions of uh, the, good, the good life um, where we can find, I think, these win, win, wins. And that's what we have to aim for. Yeah, absolutely. There's no, certainly no reason not to be going after the, the if, if, if it's making everybody better off, uh, you know, the only question is why, why we're not doing it already. And that would probably be more of a political question, I would guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, unfortunately, probably don't have time to open that can of worms. So um, I guess I'll just thank you for joining me today. Um, you know, we've covered a lot of ground and it's been a really fascinating conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been good fun.